Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning again, friends. Yes, my name is David. It's a big sigh. I didn't realize I did that. Um, this is not what I'm here to talk about today, but let me just say um, Sierra Cascades Yearly Meeting. Yeah, let me acknowledge that. Yeah, I, I, I just had to say that. But I've been working on today's message, prepared message, for many months, so I'm going to say what I came to say. And for those who wanted to hear something about CR Cascades, forgive me, I'm not going to do that. I have a title for the message, and the title uh, I'm going to say. I went through several iterations of this title. Um, Work as a spiritual exercise, is that a thing? But is it a real thing, is what I came up with. Is that possible? I'm going to begin by reading the first couple of verses, maybe two and a half verses, of James 5. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into this or that town and spend a year here, there, and do business and make a profit. You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. I can really hear my mom saying this. <laughs> She's 87 and a half, as she would say. And boy, she talks about life fleeting. I think as people get older, they get more and more like that. I would like to expand the definition of work beyond that which we get paid for to those things we're not paid for also, including efforts such as homekeeping, such as childcare, such as volunteer work, I know a lot of us do that, including work that things you're now thinking about and that I've not thought of. In essence, how we spend the long hours of the week when we're not sleeping and perhaps we're not engaging in recreation, all those hours, whatever has the danger of becoming mundane in our lives. There are some obvious ways we can connect spirituality to this work. 
ways such as not treating our co-workers or subordinates badly. But perhaps there are less obvious aspects about how we work, such as choices, which are large or small, that we might make or which might be impacted by or might impact our walking in the light. I'd like us to think about those for a few minutes today. Those choices become uh, or can become opportunities grasped, opportunities missed, or perhaps activities to be profitably avoided. <laughs> I want to talk to you for a few minutes today about my work as an example as a university professor and co-founder of a small, no, make that micro pharma company. We've got about five employees. That's micro. My first brush with malaria research began about 25 years ago, but I really began to work seriously on a drug to cure blood stage malaria about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago. This may seem like a long time, but in terms of scientific research, that's not a long time ago. I began doing this work because of the evolutionary consequences of infectious diseases that we treat with drugs. We had a gold standard anti-malarial drug for almost half a century that was safe and effective. It was available from about the end of World War II. But as good as this drug, chloroquine was, even it could not withstand the inevitability of evolution and its clinical misapplication in largely unregulated treatment settings by well-meaning people hastened its demise. The resulting resistance led to the loss of chloroquine as the frontline drug against malaria throughout most of the world as infected people traveled and transmitted the disease, person to mosquito, and then mosquito to person. Along with this, the misuse of an insecticide, DDT, made it politically untenable as also mosquitoes' resistance to this insecticide, DDT, evolved so that we lost almost simultaneously the drug chloroquine and the insecticide DDT simultaneously. And so the world has now lost its two best tools for controlling malaria, and we lost them at about the same time. Now, there are other drugs and other insecticides that have been developed for malaria, but each one is either expensive, has side effects, or is losing efficacy due to the new development of resistance by malaria parasites and the mosquitoes. In a major breakthrough, just last year, a new vaccine was approved for distribution for malaria, but it's not good enough to be fully protective and it does not have a lasting effect. In fact, a fully protective vaccine has never been achieved for parasitic infection. So, new drugs are needed and we continue our work. 
And from time to time here at West Hills, I've mentioned my work on malaria during the joys and concern portions of our meetings. Now the current state of our work for malaria is as follows. Of the hundreds of molecules that we have made in the lab at the university and tested against various strains of malaria, one drug, now called DM1157, is moving towards phase one clinical trials in humans to commence early next year. This work leading to this has been complex. So that is a figure from a grant proposal. And one starts at the top left where you have a new molecule design. And you go through all these various steps. And we are now right down there. Yeah. Preparing documentation to take to the Food and Drug Administration to get permission to go into humans. That process has taken over a decade. If you fail at any step, any one step, you start over or you quit. So, we've spent about $15 million and it's taken over a decade. This is a big deal. Many medicinal chemists can go an entire career without having a single drug go into a phase one human trial. And I'm very grateful and I'm humbled by this prospect. So for me, the spiritual connections are many. I'll just list a few. The first one is in taking career risks. I started all this when I was not recognized as a parasitologist or even a medicinal chemist. I had training in neither. I did not have a track record in these fields, but the change in career was therefore anything but a sure thing. But because of our spirit connections, I did not have to be in a safe place in order to be taken care of. Our spiritual lives and connections allow us to take huge risks. Second, working in a neglected world disease field is one in which non-white lives really do matter. Roughly nine out of 10 deaths for malaria are from Sub-Saharan Africa. And as a matter of fact, during the time of our meeting today, several people will in fact die of malaria. These people don't even count as a protected group if they immigrate to the US. They're not African Americans. They're Africans if they come to the US. These are the poorest of the poor. These are the people who would in general be grateful for a sweatshop job because that would be a big step up from an almost impossibly impoverished rural life. But there is yet more. I train graduate students 
for the next step in their careers, and I treat them with respect, whether or not they are worthy or they seem worthy all the time. I think they would acknowledge that. I have made sure that all the workers in my company have had access to health insurance, always. That's been an absolute in my company. I try to give all aspects of the various jobs that I have attention needed to do a decent job, including teaching, including research at the university, including my startup company. Sharing the task with the West Hills Friends community to hold in the light at various times during joys and concerns is a spiritual connection. And there are perhaps some other things that you could name that I am forgetting. In essence, becoming a friend has called me to treat all tasks in my life as something holy. Now I'd like to read a fairly lengthy quote from Britain Yearly Meetings Faith and Practice. And this is from their chapter 23, section eight. And it's a quote from a person named Roger Wilson. And this is all I know of Roger. It begins with a quote from Jeremiah 2.13. Two sins my people committed. They have forsaken me a spring of living water and they have hewn themselves cisterns, cisterns cracked that can hold no water. Okay, the quote gets better from there, don't worry. <laughs> I know no better description of the world we live in than that. We have forgotten the need for life-giving water of the Holy Spirit if the material element of the world in which we live is not sooner or later turned to dust and ashes, and we have developed social institutions that cannot hold or channel the life-giving water anyway. We need to see ourselves as God's plumbers, working on tanks and channels for the living water that can quicken the daily lives of men, women, and children. Jesus taught us patterns of living that make wholeness as we and our neighbors care for one another and build one another up. And all the patterns that Jesus showed us of cisterns and channels of caring and service challenge the patterns of service to wealth that offer quicker and more showy results, but end in the debris of passive, of oh, sorry, possessive society that allow the living water to run away into the sand. Good plumbers build to last. They don't fall for fashions that rust and fade and crack. 17th century friends were good plumbers. In and out of season, in and out of jail, in and out of court, counting house and farmstead, our Quaker forebears challenged the conventions of the day in politics and commerce, in the law, in the established church, in social etiquette, in education, in attitudes to, toward war, poverty, and crime. In the face of sterile institutions of the day, they found living answers about the ways in which men and women might go about their business of living together. Full stop. Back to me. I can only do what I can do. I can't 
take the world's burden of malaria on my small set of shoulders. That would make me crazy. And that would do no one good. But I can try to do what I can and do my best in the moment and try to remember to treat it as a holy task. Not that I've been able to do this perfectly or perhaps even well. But this is a message of aspiration. But I don't focus on malaria at every moment. That would also make me crazy. I need recreation. I need downtime. I have other scientific projects. I have family. Yet I've been working on this project in a fairly focused way for over a decade. If I follow this drug successfully through phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials and into its clinical practice, that could easily take another half decade, maybe more. Or if some larger problem comes up with this, it could simply fail and end my work in malaria with this drug, full stop. This is a massive risk, still. But remaining in a safe place is no place for a friend. But remaining forever in a safe place is no place for a friend. So how does your daily work or your mundane day-to-day -day tasks connect you to your walking in the light? And how can you deepen these connections.